I invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings and chapter 4. Even though it's the last Sunday in 2006, I've decided we will continue in our exposition of 1 Kings. I think there are some things that are very pertinent to the end of the year and the beginning of a new year in this chapter. We're not going to read that chapter in its entirety. Part of it is a list of names. I'll have something to say about that in a moment. But I would like to read from 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29 to the end. So I think that epitomizes what this chapter is about. 1 Kings 4:29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Haman and Chalcol and Dada the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were one thousand and five. Also he spoke of trees from the cedar let tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. A list of names, verses 1 to 20, which we've not read, and then a summary of the prosperity of Solomon, verses 21 to verse 34, does not look at first like a very promising text for the end of the year and the beginning of a new year. Especially if we're looking for inspiration, for encouragement. I mean, does it really matter to us that Azariah, the son of Zadok, was priest? in Solomon's reign, that a man called Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest and the king's close friend and counsellor, and that a man named Ben-Hur heads the list of those who were responsible for supplying the needs of the royal household, the food supplies of the royal household. Do I need to know all the food requirements of Solomon's household and even his horses? How is that going to promote my growth in grace? How is that going to encourage me? So we come to this chapter and we say to ourselves, well, are we left to scratch around this chapter, much like a chicken scratching around the farmyard looking for bits and pieces of food here and there? Well, if you've sat under the ministry here, we've been here before. We've come to a chapter of scripture like this and we've scratched our heads and said what does it mean? Why is it in the Bible? Why is a passage like this in the Bible? We know that all scripture is profitable. Some is more profitable than others. 1 Kings 4 at first reading will get a very low rating on the profitable scale. But one of the advantages of consecutive expository preaching 
is that it teaches us, first of all, how to read our Bibles. And secondly, it confronts us with why is a particular chapter or a particular section in the book, what was it that compelled the writer of the first book of Kings, led by the Spirit of God, to include this in what we now have as the inscripturated Word of God. There are several important things to observe in the chapter. And I'm going to focus on one of them because I'm not only going to preach one sermon, I'm going to preach actually two sermons from this chapter. I want to look at that one thing this evening, establish it, examine it, and then say why it is important and then work out with you some of the implications. Well, what is the one thing that I want you to observe? Here is the first thing I want to stress then this evening. Observe that God makes Solomon great. God makes Solomon great. God raises Solomon to a position of supremacy and preeminence and unsurpassed greatness in the ancient Near Eastern world of his day. Notice verse 29 again. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. You will remember, I trust in chapter 3, that Solomon had asked the Lord for wisdom. Verse 8 of chapter 3, Your servant, Solomon says, is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? And God gave this king that wisdom that he required. And God made him great in the eyes of his own people. We saw at the end of chapter 28, this was not something that was kept within the palace. This was public throughout all Israel. All Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. The wise judgment, the two women, you remember the story. We won't go into it in any detail again this evening. All Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered and they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. God made him great in the eyes of his people. They recognised that the wisdom of God was in him. In the previous two chapters, we saw in 1 Kings 1 and 2 how Solomon was established as the king. Solomon is the one who will sit on David's throne. Solomon, chosen by God, beloved of God, the son of David and Bathsheba, a remarkable instance of God's grace, given what had happened in David and Bathsheba's life. 
But God fulfills his promise to David about his throne and his kingdom when he raises up Solomon and Solomon becomes king after David. Despite the opinions of some who suggest that Solomon was nothing less than a typical ancient Near Eastern ruler, ruthless and unrighteous, as a dictator, removing rebellious Adonijah, bloodthirsty and avenging Joab, and cursing Shimei. What we need to remember is that this is God's kingdom. This is God's king. This is God's choice. The others were enemies of God, and God has broken the strength of their bows. God established a man upon the throne in fulfilment of his promise to David, a man whose mouth spoke wisdom, whose tongue spoke of justice, and the law of God was in his heart. That is the Solomon that is presented to us. I know that after chapter 11, there's a different story but we will tackle that when we come to it. These early chapters of 1 Kings show us clearly that God is establishing Solomon as king, and more than that, God is making Solomon great, first of all, in the eyes of his own people, all Israel. He is promoting this king, he is promoting his own righteousness and his own justice, But he's not only establishing Solomon as great in his own people's eyes, but he's also now giving him a position of preeminence in the ancient Near Eastern world that will have no rivals whatsoever. There is no question at the beginning of chapter 4 that Solomon is now preeminent in all Israel. Solomon was king over all Israel. God made him great by his wisdom. And that is not just an incidental comment. It needs to be read in the light of what preceded and what followed. It was not true for Solomon at the beginning of his reign. Adonijah threatened it. It was not true of David when he became king. It took seven years for him to establish himself not only in Judah but also in all Israel. And it was never ever true of any king after Solomon. Because after Solomon, the kingdom was divided between the ten tribes and the two that remained loyal, as it were, to David. Rehoboam, because of his folly, caused the kingdom to be divided, and Jeroboam, because of his rebellion, led the ten tribes astray. So it is no incidental comment when it says King Solomon was king over all Israel. There's a uniqueness about that. But he's also great and preeminent among the nations. Notice now what it says in verse 21 of this chapter. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river, that is the river Euphrates in Babylon, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. From the river to Egypt. Does that sound familiar? 
God had said something about that to Abraham. 500, no, 750 years at least, if not longer, before Solomon was king. This was the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham. And he's making this king, his own king, great and preeminent among all the nations. Solomon's name means peace. Now you may not know much Hebrew, but I'm sure you've heard of the word shalom, which means peace. Well, it's from that shalom that Solomon's name is derived. It means peace. This is a time of great peace. And Solomon reigns over all kingdoms, from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. That was not even true of David until the latter part of his reign. Solomon inherited that from his father David. But it was never, ever true again of Israel. It wasn't even true by the end of Solomon's reign. But at this particular juncture, at this particular point, God is making this man great. And we see it again in verse 29. We've already read that. The exceedingly greatness of his wisdom. Solomon excelled. He was greater than all the wisdom of Mesopotamia and of Egypt. Those were the two nations that had all the wisdom literature. They were known and renowned. And Solomon excelled them because of the wisdom that God had given to him. Notice the emphasis in verses 29 on the word all. All. Verse 30, rather. Solomon's wisdom exceeded, excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East. All the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. Now we're not sure who Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Chalcol and Dada, the sons of Mahol are. But his fame was in all surrounding nations. And then it is underlined once again in verse 34 the conclusion. And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He is recognised and he is honoured by all the kings of the earth of the ancient Near East. And they came to see this phenomenon They've never heard anything like it or seen anything like it before. The wisdom of Solomon. You see, his fame and his honour is not just among his own people, all Israel, but now among all nations and all the kings. They are all looking up to Solomon and realising there is no one like him in the world today. I'm saying to you that the Bible tells us that God put him in that position. God made him great. That is what the chapter is about. And you read the list of names in verses 1 to 20 and you may lose your way and lose the messaging. You think, what is all this about? But the entire chapter is really telling us God has made Solomon 
great. And we don't want to lose sight of that because it has tremendous implications. Now we must ask the question, if God made Solomon great, why? What is God doing? Why does he exalt this particular man and give him a place of preeminence and excellence so that there is no one like him anywhere else in the world of his day? And I'll give you at least three reasons why this is the case. The first reason is very simple. God said he would do so. God promised. He promised that to Solomon. Chapter 4 is nothing less than the fulfilment of what God promised Solomon in chapter 3 in verses 12 and 13. Let me turn you back to those verses. Solomon has asked for wisdom. He's not asked for riches. He's not asked for honour. He's simply asked for wisdom to look after and to care and rule over this great people of God. But God says, Behold, I've done according to your words, Solomon. See, I've given you a wise and understanding heart, so there has not been anyone like you before, sorry, like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I've also given you what you've not asked, both riches and honour, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. That's plain, isn't it? You can see then that 1 Kings 4 is a fulfilment of precisely what God said he would do for Solomon. There is no one like Solomon before his reign. There is no one like Solomon after he has gone. He has been exalted by God to a place of fame and excellence and greatness because that is what God promised to do. The situation then is exceptional. It is the high point in the nation's life, the nation of Israel. And chapter 4 verse 29 bears it out. That's why I say it epitomizes what is going on in this chapter. God gave Solomon wisdom and exceeding great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. So this is a display then of the faithfulness of God. That's why God shows this, makes this man great. He is displaying his faithfulness to him. He keeps his word to Solomon. But there's a second reason. In making Solomon great, God is displaying his own glory and his own power and the righteousness of his own kingdom. And he is displaying the blessing that rests upon those who have such a king who reigns over them. If you go through this chapter, you will see how well organized this kingdom is. You will see that it is a kingdom that is unified. You will see that it is a kingdom that is full of joy, eating and drinking and rejoicing. It's a kingdom that enjoys peace. 
And those things are so important that I want to spend the second sermon establishing those things and spelling out the implications. But you see, God is doing this because in exalting Solomon, he's not doing it for Solomon's sake. He's doing it in order to display his own glory and his own greatness and to display to Israel and to the nations the blessing that rests upon those whom God rules over through his wise king in righteousness and in justice. It's the blessing that God brings upon this nation of Israel and the blessing that spills over, if you like, to all the nations of the world. It is God's glory, not Solomon's. You say, well, maybe the nations didn't see it that way. That's not the point. That is the way the Bible sees it. That is why it's in the Scriptures. It is God's glory that is being displayed in here. It is God's prerogative to make Solomon great and in making Solomon great to display his glory and his name and his fame throughout the nations of the world. And then there's a third reason. When you see that God is making Solomon great, if you know your Bible well, you may well begin to be thinking to yourself, well, perhaps God is preparing the way for his ultimate king. One who is greater than Solomon. Of Solomon, it was said, there is no one like you before you and no one like you after you. Now that, of course, was spoken in this particular historical context. Because then the Lord Jesus Christ comes and speaks of the glory that was Solomon's and then says, a greater than Solomon is here. He's standing in your very midst. If you did but have eyes to see me, he says. And there are many things that are true here of Solomon's kingdom that are finally and permanently fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon is given a position of greatness. Solomon reflects the glory of God. But there is one coming. And the one who is coming, remember those words of the angel to Mary, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. A greater than Solomon. And the way is being prepared. Solomon looked of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the Psalms, Psalm 72. If you can turn to that quickly. Psalm 72 and verse 8. This is a Psalm of Solomon. That is the title to it. Of this king he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings will bow down before him. All nations 
shall serve him a greater than Solomon. It's paving the way. You see, when God raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead, he confounded the wisdom of this world. Christ crucified was raised from the dead and God gave him a position of greatness. What do we read in Philippians 2.9? God has given him a name that is where? Above every name. Solomon is a type of Christ. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, for example, where God, raising Jesus Christ from the dead, gives him a position of so great prominence that is described there as being over all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which his body, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now Solomon was not Christ. And this glory that was revealed in his kingdom and the greatness of Solomon was temporary. But it was real. It happened. And God made this man great. And for a number of years the glory of God shone in a way in this kingdom that it had never done before and would never do again until the glory of God was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. But it, it's paving the way. It's paving the way for the coming of Christ. And that's all I really want to establish this evening. To establish that God made this man great, this king great. The reasons for it we have seen. But there are some important implications, thirdly. Have you the eyes to see what is in fact being portrayed here in chapter 4? Have you eyes to see what Israel saw? Have you eyes to see what the nations were being shown? The greatness of Solomon. But it does not stop there. It is the greatness of the God who has made Solomon great. That is what this chapter is about. And that is what the Bible is about. It's about God. It's the revelation of God. God in his glory and in his majesty and in his power. The greatness of God's rule in a world where there is sin. In a world where there is Satan. In a world where there is death. A world that does not like the wisdom of God, but nevertheless God establishes a wise, just and righteous man as king. And the blessing of God that came upon the nation of Israel as a consequence of that, so that it can be said of the people that they were eating and drinking and rejoicing, so that it can be said of them that they had peace on every side, all around them. The blessings of being under God's 
wise, righteous ruler and under God's king and in God's kingdom. The blessing that flows. That is what this chapter is about. It's about having God as our God and being under his blessing. Alright, it is an imperfect kingdom because Solomon is but a man. But it is only a pattern of what is to come finally and fully in Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just a list of names. It's not just a list of Solomon's prosperity. It's not ultimately telling us that Solomon made himself great. It's telling us that Solomon was made great by the Lord God whose kingdom is being established in this sinful, fallen world. That's why I so radically disagree with some of the commentators who describe Solomon's actions in the early chapters of 1 Kings as acts of political ruthlessness. How Solomon exploited the situation. How he seized the opportunities to remove Adonijah, Joab and Shimei. Even those, there are commentators who look at chapter 4 and they read it and they say, ah, here he is again, Solomon promoting himself. Despite his prayer in chapter 3 and despite the plain evidence in the text, and God gave Solomon wisdom and exceeding great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. I believe that some of these commentators they are blinded by 20th, 20th and 21st century liberal humanism and secularism. But once God removed basically out of the picture. Now they're writing commentaries on the Bible and I'm not sitting here judging whether they are Christians or not. But I do think they've been influenced by the spirit of this age. And I don't think they're reading the Bible accurately. They're not getting the message that God wants us to get. Some of them perhaps would even equate Solomon's actions with the kind of actions that Saddam Hussein was responsible for. And other dictators. But God's standards of righteousness and of justice are very different to man's standards. We've seen some of the reaction already to Saddam Hussein's execution. I don't know whether you realise it, but you cannot be a member nation of the European nation states unless you reject capital punishment. That's why there is a furore over his execution. Most of them are diplomatically saying... Well, it's their responsibility, they're a nation state, but we don't agree with it. And people today do not understand the difference between punishment and taking vengeance. They do not understand the notion of justice and righteous punishment. And so they say, you're treating violence and you're meeting violence with more violence. That is a complete turnaround of God's kingdom. When Solomon removes Adonijah, Joab and Shimei, it is a testimony to the righteousness of the kingdom of God. These men were God's enemies. 
and they would find no place in 1 Kings chapter 4. They'd be sticking up there like a sore thumb if they were still alive. Because they would be a threat to the peace and security and the blessing of God in that kingdom. Therefore they are removed as a judgment, a severe judgment of God. Solomon then is not promoting himself. This is not human cleverness. This is not human achievement. You compare that with Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 30. Remember his words? Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and my honour and my majesty? What happened to that man? Remember what happened to him? He was struck down and became an animal and ate grass and drew strange claws on his hands and his feet. Became like a beast. That's not Solomon, is it? That's not Solomon at all. It's very important that you see then what is actually going on here. That your eyes, as you read the Bible, are not blinded by the same kind of liberal humanism and secularism that wants God pushed out of the picture. We need to learn to read our Bibles in the right kind of way. You will come across people almost every day of your life who will say something like this. We don't believe that Christianity or religion is of any real value. All it does is causes war and trouble. They've missed the point completely and utterly. It's one of the lies of the devil in order to prevent people from coming to confess Jesus Christ. They read the Bible, they say it's full of fighting, it's full of killing, it's full of injustice. And they dismiss the Old Testament, the Bible, out of hand. As far as they're concerned, it's one more nail in God's coffin. But they miss the point of chapter 4. The blessing of God is about joy. It's about peace. It's about wisdom. It's about righteousness. It's about justice. It's about God who establishes all those things and pours out his blessing in the reign of Solomon. And if you abandon that perspective on the Bible and dismiss the Bible as nonsense and full of contradictions and you can't follow it because of all the fighting and because of all the killing that goes on in it, what do you end up with? No hope. No certainty. No encouragement. A bleak, dark, empty void. Nothing to say. No standards. No hope. No comfort. No joy. No peace. Because sin and darkness reigns. And the kingdom of darkness rejoices. Now I've been negative up to this point. Let me be positive. How do you read then your Bible? Increasingly we need to learn to read our Bibles in the same way in, what, in which it was written, in the same way that Solomon understood it and in the same way that the people of God understood 
and the same way that the writers of the scriptures understood. What do I mean? When you read the Bible, you're reading about God's works and God's ways. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon has a very interesting phrase which may help us read our Bibles correctly and accurately and get the message that God intends us to get. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 24, as Solomon comes to dedicate the temple, he begins his prayer and he says, You have kept what what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. And Solomon goes on to trace out what God has spoken with his mouth and then what his hand has fulfilled. In other words, he focuses upon God's plans, God's purposes, God's promises, and then how those plans and purposes and promises have been fulfilled. What you have here in 1 Kings chapter 4 is the hand of God fulfilling what the mouth of God spoke in 1 Kings chapter 3. And that is one important way to read your Bible. That is how Israel interpreted what was going on. They realized God had made Solomon king. They saw the wisdom that God had given to this man and they came to that conclusion. And I would suggest to you that even though it does not say so, this was the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts, enabling them to recognize what God was doing in his servant Solomon. And the writer of 1 Kings, he had the eyes to see this. That is why he said, led by the Spirit, he penned chapter 4 and verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom. As you begin a new year, as you begin to read your Bible again this coming year, perhaps it will help you to understand the Word of God more accurately and more intelligently and appreciate then the greatness and the glory of God as you seek to trace out what God has spoken with his mouth and then trace out how he has fulfilled it by his hand. In one sense, that is what the Bible is all about. You could start with Genesis 3.15. There's the first promise. That's what God's mouth has spoken. And God's hand has been fulfilling that promise ever since. And that is true of every promise. Because no promise of God falls to the earth and is forgotten. All the words of God that God speaks, that God promises, plans and his purposes... They come to pass in the person, finally, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, some of them are underlying this entire chapter. The promises that God gave to David and then were fulfilled in Solomon. The promises then that have been given throughout the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures concerning the great king who will come. 
His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign and his glorious return. And the ultimate blessing, the ultimate peace that will descend upon the people of God that is recorded for us at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. The ultimate, final, perfect expression of the kingdom of God and of the peace and the joy that flows to the people of God as God takes up his dwelling among his people. Revelation 21 and 22 is really the fulfillment of all that God has been promising ever since the fall of man and the fall of Adam and Eve. Solomon's name is still famous. Even people who don't know the Bible know of Solomon. They may not know the right things about Solomon, but they know his name. And they equate it with some kind of fame and some kind of glory. But we are speaking here the name of Jesus. The name that shall endure forever and forever. The name that shall continue as long as the sun. You see, as, as you begin to see those promises of God, the plan and the purpose of God, you see the faithfulness of God. And what does it do? As you see God speak, and then you see God's hand fulfilling what he has spoken, it builds your faith. It builds your confidence. It builds your assurance. You say, this God is my God. This is the God who rules over the entire universe. And he does so in the interests of me and of his kingdom. Because he has put me in his kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's exalted his son, Jesus Christ. He's exalted him as Lord. He's given him a name that is above every name. But of the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. This is the one who is my saviour. This is the one who is my redeemer. Your eyes then open to see in the Bible God's spoken word. That God is at work. And his word explains what he is doing in Solomon's reign. And what he is doing when he sends Jesus Christ into this world. The media will never tell you those things. They've lost the plot a long time ago. What you need to do is immerse yourself more and more and more in this book. To trace out what God has spoken with his mouth and what he has fulfilled by his hand. God gave Solomon wisdom, riches and honour. But to Christ belongs this and far more. Remember the song in Revelation. He is worthy, the lamb that was slain is worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honour, glory and blessing. Let us fall down then and worship him. Fall down and worship him. For God has made him great. God has established him. God has given him preeminence. And your faith and your hope are in that one whom God has made great. He is your saviour. Therefore you can have joy and confidence in God. Because his 
Saviour, our Saviour, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall endure forever and forever. Of His kingdom there is no end. Let us keep our eye upon Him that our faith may be strong and our confidence may increase and our joy and our peace abound and overflow because of our God and because of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> o oh Lord, our God, we marvel at the blessings which you bestowed upon Israel in the days of Solomon. And we marvel at the greatness that you have bestowed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings that flow through his redeeming work. And Lord, we pray that as we trace the fulfilling of your promises in the Scriptures, as we listen to the preaching of the Word in the days to come, we pray that our hearts may be taken up and enthralled with the glory of our God and the greatness of your works. Oh, our God, we know that in this world we find little to draw comfort. But Lord, we find rest for our weariness and peace and joy and gladness in believing upon you and upon your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, may these things so strengthen and establish our hearts. Christ may be glorified in us and through us all the remaining days of our life. We ask it for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.